This episode is brought to you by Milano Cookies. Look, sometimes that long Zen yoga class is just not in the cards. So maybe a cookie is. Pepperidge Farm Milano believes you should make some time for yourself once in a while. I know I have a particular space in my sewing room that I like to just take a few minutes every day. I sit there. I think about things. It's kind of like meditation and munching at the same time. You can get that yummy, beautiful cookie flavor. It makes it luxurious and delightful, and I always feel recharged. Milano cookies are truly a treat worthy of your me time. They're delicate and crispy with luxuriously rich chocolate in the middle. You really want to keep these just for you. So remember to save something for yourself with Pepperidge Farm Milano. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tuman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Listen to all episodes of Tomb and Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com. Hello and welcome to the podcast. I am Tracy B. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. And I think I may have been desensitized by living in today's world of spree killings and mass murders. Because when I hear the word massacre, uh, I think of, of something like the Red Wedding in Game of Thrones. Right. Or maybe one of its real world inspirations, which was the 1692 massacre of Glencoe. And that's when soldiers under Archibald Campbell, who was the 10th Earl of Argyle, slaughtered 38 members of the MacDonald clan. So, so you think of something with high volume... And pretty um, aggressive. Wholesale killing of yeah. basically undefended people. Yeah. Uh, so the word massacre, just, it brings up way bloodier images than what really went down in our second most requested massacre topic. Uh, the first one being the massacre at Glencoe, which yeah. we just mentioned. That's the Boston Massacre, which at the time was known as the Bloody Massacre in, Ken- in King Street. And massacre kind of makes it sound as though it was the wholesale slaughter of a bunch of innocent Bostonians who were just standing around minding their own business, uh, which is not true at all. (laughs) (laughs) It was not at all like that. Uh, But there is definitely a reason why we call it the Boston Massacre and not the minor Boston kerfuffle with a few unfortunate casualties. And that reason is propaganda. Uh, maybe we should start a Facebook page to try to change it to the Boston <laughs> minor kerfuffle. With a few unfortunate casualties. Yeah. So, yeah, that that's what we're going to talk about today. What actually happened during the Boston Massacre and why we call it a massacre today and not something else. So we're going to talk about the propaganda aspect. But first, we need to put a little context into the situation. Uh, so on June 29th of 1767, the British Parliament passed the Townsend Revenue Act with the purpose of raising 40,000 pounds per year to, quote, defray the charge of the administration of justice and the support of civil government. In other words, they needed to offset the British government's cost of running the colonies. And this put a tax on several really common items that were exported to the colonies from Britain. Here's the actual list. I find this list delightful. <laughs> Uh, for every hundred weight average deploys of crown, plate, flint, and white glass, four shillings and eight pence. For every hundred weight 
avoirdupois of red lead, two shillings. For every hundredweight avoirdupois of green glass, one shilling and two pence. For every hundredweight avoirdupois of white lead, two shillings. For every hundredweight avoirdupois of painter's colors, two shillings. For every pound weight avoirdupois of tea, three pence. And for every ream of paper, usually called or known by the name of Atlas Fine, 12 shilling. And avoirdupois is basically the pounds and ounces weight system that uh, many of us still use today. And if you are familiar in any way uh, with the U.S. on the subject of taxes, you can probably imagine how very popular this whole plan was. Yes. Which is not at all. Right. And on top of that, taxation of goods was already an extremely sore subject in the colonies. In 1765, Parliament had passed the Stamp Act, which was a tax on, quote, every skin or piece of vellum or parchment or sheet or piece of paper. And paper and vellum for different uses were subject to different rates of tax. So the Stamp Act was supposed to fund the defense of the American frontier, and the colonies objected to the whole idea of using a tax to raise money rather than to regulate commerce. And uh, the colonies were very concerned about the precedent that the, that this set, that, you know, Britain could just say, here, have a tax now that we are going to use to raise lots of money. This uh, led to the colonists responding to the Stamp Acts with protests and violence, and consequently, Parliament repealed it in 1766, although in basically the same breath, it also passed what was called the Declaratory Acts. And those more or less said, hey, Britain can pass laws for the colonies and the colonies have to follow them. And too bad if you don't like it. So just a couple of years behind the Stamp Act, which was so very wildly popular, uh, the Townsend Act also went over poorly. So poorly, in fact, that the British government had to send regiments of regulars to Boston just to keep the peace. Customs officials were being harassed and threatened as a result of these taxes, and the governor wanted military help just to help restore order. So the regulars, who became increasingly known as the Redcoats, started arriving on October 1st of 1768. So you may recall from our recent episode on the Hessians that deploying troops to the colonies from Britain was an extremely long and time-consuming task. So that is why, even though it had been quite a while since the act was passed, uh, many, many months later, did the military show up to try to calm things down. And uh, the people of Boston did not really like this one bit. Uh, On top of the principle of a military force just showing up to make them behave themselves, Soldiers were also raising the competition for jobs because they would sometimes take on additional work in their off hours to supplement their income. And they were willing to take less money because they also had their pay as a soldier. So consequently, the citizens of Boston greeted the Redcoats with taunts and jeers and a lot of fighting and spitting. And all in all, relationships between the troops and the city went extremely poorly for about 18 months before the tensions really started to rise in March of 1770. By this point, people were trying to get shopkeepers to stop selling imported products from Britain entirely and also vandalizing stores that did carry British products. So in the days after the massacre, a packet of military depositions was sent back to England, which described the environment uh, this way from the British perspective. Whoever has conversed much with those who have been lately at Boston must know that the arrival of the king's troops at that town in 1768 was exceedingly disgustful to all that part of the people who call themselves the Sons of Liberty and deny 
the authority of the British Parliament to pass the late acts for imposing duties upon certain articles of trade imported into America, and who certainly form a great majority of the people in that town, though perhaps not of the persons of the best fortunes and most respectable characters in the place. Basically, the rabble are cranky. (laughs) That was the British version of the story, (laughs) for sure. So, on March 5th, 1770, that's when the Boston Massacre took place. Captain John Goldfinch was walking down King Street when the wig maker's apprentice, whose name was Edward Garrick, hollered at him that he had not paid for his wig. Captain Goldfinch just ignored him. And uh, so Edward then repeated this accusation to other passersby in a similarly hollering fashion. So Hugh White, who was the sentry on duty at the Customs House, heard this commotion, and he told Edward that the captain, being a gentleman, would of course pay for anything he had bought. Edward, however, disbelieved that there were any gentlemen among the Redcoats, and he expressed that quite loudly. Uh, And that prompted White to leave his post and strike Edward with his musket. At which point, the crowd, which had already started to gather in response to all of this yelling in the street, started heckling and taunting White. And he returned to his post, loaded his weapon, and called for the main guard. At roughly the same time, there were crowds having similar altercations with the British at other points nearby in Boston. And there was a lot of hurling of insults and snowballs at the uniformed troops. Someone also rang a fire bell, which prompted even more people to come out into the streets. And this whole giant crowd started to converge on the customs house. John Adams later called this crowd, quote, a motley rabble of saucy boys, Negroes and mulattoes, Irish teagues and outlandish jack tars. It was kind of rowdy. Take that as you will. <laughs> In all this commotion, Captain Thomas Preston heard that people were planning to carry White off from his post and murder him. And perhaps while they were at it, they were also going to rob the customs house. So he decided to intervene and he brought seven men from the 29th Regiment to back him up. At that point, the crowd had started throwing snowballs, which sounds not so terrible, but then also sticks, rocks, oyster shells, ouch, and whatever else was at hand. The soldiers arranged themselves in a kind of half circle facing out to the crowd. So we're leaning on unreliable, almost 250-year-old eyewitness testimony here. So it's a little unclear exactly who did what to cause the first shot to be fired. We do know that a man named Crispus Attucks, who was carrying a club, approached the soldiers and grabbed one of their bayonets, and that soldier Hugh Montgomery was knocked down. When Montgomery got up, he fired his musket kind of at the general direction of the crowd, and he shouted for others to fire. They did, even as Captain Preston was yelling orders for them to hold their fire. And then uh, there was general chaos and shooting and sort of a big mass the melee. Melee is a perfect word. Refray. And that went on with some confusion until the dust settled. Three men died at the scene. These were Crispus Attucks, Samuel Gray, and James Caldwell. Uh, Crispus Attucks was the son of an African man and a Native American woman. He was the first to fall after being shot twice in the chest. He has since become known as the revolution's first hero, and we don't really know much about his life before the massacre, except that he had escaped from slavery and found work as a whaler and a rope maker. In addition to the fatalities, eight other people were injured, 
And Samuel Maverick and Patrick Carr ended up dying of their injuries later. That brings the death toll of the Boston Massacre to five. A warrant was issued for the arrest of Captain Preston a little after midnight that night. Pretty much the only way they were able to get the crowd to go back about their business was to reassure them that, yes, there would be an investigation and that these men would see justice done. Hey, listeners, I wanted to tell you about a new podcast from iHeartRadio called The Women, hosted by Rose Reed. It is a fascinating and deep dive interview show where Rose talks to changemakers and disruptors and she finds out what really drives them. So she will ask each of them, what was your first stand and how do you navigate success and failure? And really, what's the cost of fighting for others? These interviews are really personal and they're candid and sometimes they're a little bit crass, but they are always really enlightening. You can listen to these firebrands and takeaway lessons that will help you navigate your own life and forge your own path. The debut season includes women like Valerie Plame, the former CIA agent who is now running for Congress, and whistleblower and pediatrician Dr. Mona Hanna-Atisha, who exposed the Flint water crisis and became the center of a swirling, swirling amount of problems, uh, and the legendary Buffy St. Marie, 60s songwriter and activist. Uh, I have personal interest in this show because I adore Rose and I executive produce it, and I think you're really going to enjoy the way that she gets into these conversations that feel like two friends talking, and they are an absolute delight. So subscribe to The Women on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, Holly, we have some exciting news. Yeah, I am wildly excited, and uh, people will have another opportunity to watch me cry at art. <laughs> yeah, you sounded so calm, and it's not a calm situation at all. Uh, our trip to Paris last year was really successful, so we're doing another similar trip this year, but this time to Rome and Florence. It's May 14th through 21st, 2020, and like last time, it is with a company called Defined Destinations, who is planning out this whole trip for us. Yeah, and during that week-long trip, we are going to see some of the great art that we have talked about on this show many times, including Michelangelo's David. We are going to go to Tuscany. We're going to visit St. Peter's Basilica. We are going to the Sistine Chapel. So it's going to be a fantastic trip. You can get the whole list of places that we are going and information about booking at defineddestinations.com. Scroll down to the Roman Florence trip with stuff you missed in history class or come over to our social media. We have posts about it there too. So in response to the killings, the people of Boston demanded that the soldiers who had participated in the shooting, along with their captain, be tried for murder. Captain Preston and his eight soldiers were indicted on March 13th, although the trial was put off for several months to allow the town's passions to cool down, and they all remained in jail in, interim, in the interim. Preston wrote letters from his jail cell, and some of them were published in the Boston papers, and those that had been published expressed empathy for the citizens and those who had fallen. While on the other hand, a letter that was published back in England was basically pretty scathing. Uh, and naturally, word got back to the colonies about that one. Uh, and that did not really help his case. Nope. He was kind of talking out of both sides of his mouth. <laughs> the citizens of Boston also demanded that the British troops be removed. And eventually, fearing further retaliation... Acting Governor Thomas Hutchinson and Colonel Dalrymple, who was in charge of the units, had the troops removed to Castle William, which is on an island three miles out in Boston Harbor. Captain Preston and the soldiers were arraigned on September 7th, and they all pled not guilty. 
Captain Preston was tried for murder in October of 1770, separately from the other soldiers. The soldiers had requested that they all be tried together. Their defense was that they were just following orders, and Preston's defense was that he had not actually given an order to fire. So the soldiers were really understandably afraid that if Preston was tried first and then found guilty, that they would automatically be guilty with no possible way to prove their innocence. Their request, though, was denied with no explanation. And as you can imagine, they had a hard time finding legal representation in Boston. Uh, Most lawyers feared that they would never work again if they dared to defend these soldiers. And in the end, leading the defense for both the captain and his men was John Adams. Robert Akmuti and Hosiah Quincy Jr. helped defend the captain, and Quincy and Samson Salter Blowers helped defend the soldiers. So there was a transcription presumably made of Captain Preston's trial, and that has not survived until today, but we know the basics. Eyewitnesses for the defense insisted that Captain Preston had not ordered for anyone to fire. On the other hand, eyewitnesses for the prosecution insisted that he had. Adams' defense relied on raising doubts about the testimony of the prosecution's witnesses. And the captain's trial lasted from October 24th to October 30th with the sequestered jury eventually finding him not guilty. This was a shock. Too many people. Yeah. The eight British soldiers were tried as well in November and December of 1770, and the trial was uh, officially known as Rex versus Weems et al. The transcript of this trial still exists today, and their defense hinged on the idea that the soldiers were firing in self-defense. Six of the soldiers were acquitted on the grounds that they were defending themselves. In John Adams' words, quote, If an assault was made to endanger their lives, the law is clear. They had a right to kill in their own defense. If it was not so severe as to endanger their lives, yet if they were assaulted at all, struck and abused by blows of any sort, by snowballs, oyster shells, cinders, clubs, or sticks of any kind, this was a provocation for which the law reduces the offense of killing down to manslaughter in consideration of those passions in our nature which cannot be eradicated. So while six of the soldiers were acquitted, two of them were indeed convicted of manslaughter, and at their sentencing they pled the benefit of clergy. Laws at the time basically allowed for clergy to receive more lenient sentencing, especially when it came to the death penalty. And this allowance had, over many centuries, come to apply to all kinds of people in all kinds of situations. So pleading the benefit of clergy reduced their sentence to having the letter M branded onto their thumbs. So they would be marked forever as manslaughterers. On their thumbs. Yeah. Uh, John Adams, as you can imagine, initially faced hostility for his role in the trials. But his defense of the soldiers was eventually viewed as something of an act of bravery. And then, of course, he became George Washington's vice president and then the second president of the United States. So it did not really taint his reputation as much as people had expected. In the end, no. And in the uh, uh, today, it's become an example in law schools sometimes of of an example of when somebody has defended, uh, you know, a a clearly unpopular choice of someone to defend Mm -hmm. uh, in the interest of making sure that person got actual justice. Uh, John Adams later wrote this in his diary. The part that I took in defense of Captain Preston and the soldiers procured me anxiety and obloquy enough. It was, however, one of the most gallant, generous, manly, and disinterested actions of my whole life, and one of the best pieces of service I ever rendered my country. 
judgment of death against those soldiers would have been as foul a stain upon this country as the executions of the Quakers or witches anciently. But the bigger impact of this massacre was its influence on the American Revolution. The dead became martyrs, and the incident raised a rallying cry for independence. And one of the many people stirring the pot was John Hancock, who had become a vocal opponent of the British after his sloop, the Liberty, was seized after its cargo of wine was unloaded without Hancock paying the duties on it. So he had not paid his taxes. No. And his ship was taken. He objected to that idea. Paul Revere created an engraving which shows a line of British soldiers in their red coats just firing indiscriminately at a huge crowd of people. It ran under the name The Bloody Massacre Perpetrated in King Street, Boston. Samuel Adams also contributed to the massacre moniker, writing letters in the Boston Gazette as well as helping to pen, quote, a short narrative of the horrid massacre in Boston perpetrated on the evening of the 5th day of March, 1770, by soldiers of the 29th Regiment, with which the 14th Regiment were then quartered there, with some observations on the state of things prior to that catastrophe, also known as a short narrative of the horrid massacre in Boston. Uh, Because that first title is a little wordy. Extremely long. (laughs) The British counterpart to this pamphlet was set was the set of depositions we read from earlier, and that was titled A Fair Account of the Late Unhappy Disturbance at Boston in New England. Yes. Perspective changes everything. They did not call this the Boston Massacre in Britain. They called it, like, the incident in Boston. Yeah. Uh, it, it was not referred to as a massacre at all. And basically the reason why we in the United States call it a massacre is because uh, Paul Revere and Samuel Adams were basically acting like spin doctors. Yeah, they were propagandizing the event. Yes. If, if you were angry about spin in the news, it's not new. It is absolutely not a new thing at all. And one of the things that was just the, the best, the best part of researching this episode is the fact that most of these pamphlets still exist and you can, yeah, them you can look them up and you can see the blindingly different interpretations of what happened. There's a city far away. A fiction podcast. The richest, most powerful place on Earth. On an epic scale. Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay. Tuman Bay. A vast empire threatened by rebellion. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place, or we will die too. The truth makes us strong. Tuman Bay is our destiny. History and fantasy collide. They are among us. Who? First a few, and now many. From creators John Scott Dryden and Mike Walker. The only thing I ask of you is total and complete loyalty. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, for a number of years after, uh, March 5th was a day of remembrance in Massachusetts. The site of the massacre is a spot on the Freedom Trail that still exists, uh, and a memorial to Crispus Attucks was erected in Boston Commons in 1888 over the opposition of historical organizations that viewed him as a villain, not a hero. Yeah, it's... Because the, you know, the, the, the records of that day are so clouded and fuzzy, mm-hmm. 
there are people who see Crispus Attis, Attucks as like the first real patriot dying in the revolution. Like he was the person that uh, stood up that to the red stood coats. up to the redcoats. You could really look at the same accounts and more arrive at the idea that uh, that he was basically the the guy that threw a first punch and in a bar fight. Yeah, and in that bar fight, throwing the first punch hit a cop. Like <laughs> right, that you could really look at it either way. Um, but but he does wind up with with also a notable place as being uh, one of the first African Americans to have played a big role uh, in that way in the revolution. So there are lots of layers there. And luckily, you can do plenty of uh, looking around at a lot of this stuff, as Tracy mentioned just a moment ago. The Massachusetts Historical Society has a bunch of these documents uh, all grouped together in one easy-to-find place. And they're kind of hilarious, not only because of the obvious slant and spinning that's going on, depending on who's writing, but also because of, as Tracy says, the long S's that looks like that look like F's. Yes. And we'll link you to that uh in the show notes. We will. There's also the the Bostonian Society has made a game that is meant for elementary and middle school students that's all about investigating the massacre, uh, which is pretty fun. I did not play all the way through it, but it, it basically is like, hey, you're an investigator. You got to figure out what happened at this massacre. That's very fun. It's quite fun. And a cool way to engage kids and adults, frankly, about uh, learning about history. Yeah, I would every historical event had one of those. That would be so awesome. I uh, I really I wanted to, to do the whole thing, but I really, really, really needed to finish my notes <laughs> so that I could go home. So, yes, the Boston Massacre. I pulled some random people uh, as I as I got into this story. Yeah, I was like, hey, how many how many people do you think got killed at the Boston Massacre? Hundreds. Well, nobody said hundreds, but most people came up with a number that was more than 20. Yeah. And when I said five, they were like, really? Yeah. So I don't want to belittle the fact that five human beings lost their lives. Like, that's not the point. The point is more that massacre is a great big bloody word. Yeah. And what happened was much more like a street brawl with casualties. Yeah. It was an incident that went poorly, but it was not kind of the big, huge... I mean, it, it probably took moments. Yes. And was not quite the event that the word massacre conjures in most people's minds. Right, right. So with that, do you also have some listener mail? I do. I have two brief pieces of listener mail that are both about our two-part episode on Audre Lorde. Uh, the first one is from Amy. And Amy says, hey, ladies, I just wanted to give you a shout out about the Audre Lorde podcast. I'm currently a student studying and living in the city of Cuernavaca, Mexico. And I just wanted to let you know that, yes, it is about an hour and a half to get to Mexico City because, although Google Maps says an hour, the entire route is through the mountains and has a lot of switchback highway curves, so you can't actually go the speed limit. Therefore, it would probably take about the same amount of time in the 50s if they still had the toll roads when you get on and off the highway. Many of the people who live in Cuernavaca work in Mexico City because the climate in the community is better here than in the cold, bustling city of DF, also known as Distrito Federal. There is still a large expatriate community here, although and although I have not actively been seeking out other Americans, I am told that there is a fairly substantial community in the city. I just wanted to let you know about the city I have grown to love more and more each day. Thanks, ladies. Amy. Cool. Thanks, Amy. Mm-hmm. Um, that will save us the drive down to test it. <laughs> Let's do that. The history road trip. Okay. Just to see how long it takes to go from Mexico, Mexico I would City. I love to do wacky history road trips for things exactly like that. Just yes. to test. Let's see how long this would have taken. 
That reminds me of after our Johnny Appleseed podcast, mm. we had somebody write in and talk about a, a t- trip they were taking, on, I think, on foot to retrace the Appleseed route. Yeah. Uh, which is pretty cool. And whether or not it was actually viable for him to have done what people said he did. Yes. Uh, our second note is from Dan, and it came to us in our Facebook inbox. And Dan says, I really loved the two-parter on Audrey Lord." I wanted to tip you guys off to part of Lord's intellectual legacy that I've been writing about a lot recently. I defended my doctoral dissertation on the history of the of African American AIDS activism last week, and one of my chapters covered a movement of black gay men in the late 1980s and early 1990s called the Black Gay Renaissance. They were deeply influenced by Lord and women from the kitchen table circle, including Barbara Smith, Sherry Moraga, and Gloria Anzaldúa. They applied the idea of intersectionality to HIV slash AIDS prevention, arguing that black gay men were subject to a unique set of social and psychological pressures because of their multiple marginalized identities, putting them at high risk for HIV. They also produced a lot of art aimed at raising the visibility of black gay men. Notable names include Joseph Beam, Essex Hemphill, Asoto Saint, and filmmaker Marlon Riggs. Maybe they could be the subject of a future episode. Thanks again for enlightening us about Audre Lorde. I love this letter. Yeah. Uh, because there's so much focus on Audre Lorde's impact in the worlds of literature and uh, like the women's movement and uh, feminism and especially black feminism. Uh, there's so much focus on women uh, and, and gay women that I, I had not actually heard about any influence that had instead to do with men. I had not either. So that was wonderful insight. It was. So thank you so much, Dan. I think that sounds like a fascinating doctoral dissertation. Yes, and also congrats on defending your thesis. Indeed. Mazel. Yes. So if you would like to write to us about this or anything else, you can. We are at historypodcastatdiscovery.com. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash historyclassstuff and on Twitter at mistinhistory. Our Tumblr is mistinhistory.tumblr.com and we are pinning things away on Pinterest. If you would like to learn about another watershed moment in the history of the American Revolution, you can come to our website and put the words Boston Tea Party in our search bar and you will find an article called How the Boston Tea Party Works. You can do all of that and a whole lot more at our website, which is howstuffworks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. This episode of Stuff You Missed in History Class is brought to you by Lynda.com. You can learn it at Lynda.com, an online learning company with more than 77,000 video tutorials that teach software, creative, and business skills. Membership starts at $25 a month and provides unlimited 24-7 access to top-quality video courses taught by expert instructors with real-world experience. Listeners of Stuff You Missed in History Class can try Lynda.com free for seven days by visiting Lynda.com slash history stuff. The richest, most powerful place on earth. A fiction podcast. Tillman Bay. On an epic scale. Power is everything. Power gives everything. We have to get away from this place. Tuman Bay is our destiny. Now on the iHeart Podcast Network, Tuman Bay. Be sharp and die for Tuman Bay! Listen to all episodes of Tuman Bay Seasons 1 and 2 now for free on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
Do you like boats? Do you like big boats? Do you like poor people and the rich people they serve on big boats? Are you always like, what goes on below deck? Hi, this is Anna Hosnier. And Nick Turner. The hosts of Deckheads. And we want to take you on a fun and goofy adventure. In this binge-style podcast, we will watch and recap every episode of Bravo's Below Deck and all of its spinoffs. And we're going to release an episode a day so you can watch along with us and listen to our silly daily recaps. Listen to Deckheads when it drops on February 20th on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.